Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ah, live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled <laughs> in a secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area, following program produced with an artistic vengeance by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. Well, you're, you're half right. Just with a vengeance. <laughs> Nothing artistic about it. The man smoking the giant cigar in the chair right there is Howard Lapidus. I like to be portrayed as the man smoking the giant cigar Yeah. in the chair over there. Yeah, that's... Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh, the guy who's not smoking the giant cigar and whose microphone is conveniently unplugged again this week is Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker. Well, thank you very much. Oh, damn it. Someone plugged it back in. <laughs> You know, there's a lot could be uh, said about Chugiak, Alaska. Are we going to go there already? Chugiak, Alaska. Not how are you? Uh, I know how you are. You're uh, a man of great largesse. Talent, abilities, far beyond those of... Huh? Have we ever left Alaska? No sound. We have we ever left Alaska? <laughs> what is Matt Allen doing? If those of you looking closely at your computer can tell that Matt Allen is wandering around aimlessly, moving chairs... Moving pictures. He's in the film industry. Moving pictures. Yeah. That's I'm in favor of that. Yeah. Do you ever see the documentary on how the motion, motion pictures were invented? No. Tell us. Uh, taking pictures of horses. Horses. That's it? Well, yeah, because there was a bet about if a quarter horse was running or all four legs off the ground at once. And one side of the bet said yes, the other side said no. So the guy says of camera. Every X number of feet to get the horse in its entire motion. Well, if you flip the pictures... You see the horse running. Yeah. Well, boy, good heavens, I should patent this and call myself Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. I don't know. What I don't know. Somebody. It was somebody did. George Eastman. I don't know. Yeah. It might have been Horace Leachman. That too. Yeah. She's old enough now, I think. She's, yes. Did you see the... We uh, still haven't gone to Chugiak... Did you happen to see the Connors, the Roseanne saw, show without Roseanne? Yeah, I saw uh, about half. Well, first half or second half? First half. I saw both halves. Did you? And what did you think? I felt the same way that Lee Goldberg did, and that is, much better show without her. <laughs> <laughs> but hardly worthwhile. Uh, I saw it was just as well written as any other episode. Well, they have great writers on that show. It's the same guys, you know, that yeah. are writing it. And so the, the jokes were great. Yeah. Humor was good. John Goodman is always... Always good. And that means the strategy, you take someone like Roseanne and you surround them with great actors and great well, that's writers. that's how it's done. When you, when you, when you, when you get a, somebody that breaks in comedy as a stand-up, they have no clue usually how to act. So if you're going to get them on TV, you have to surround them with tremendous uh, talent. Yeah, talent which they did with that show. Yes, of course. In fact, uh, my uh, semi-significant uh, otherette, Gave an award uh, from whatever organization she was with at the time to uh, the writers on that show for uh, some sort of you know family values humanitarian uh, quality award. Back in the day, she had twenty nine writers in there at once. At once, how they get along as well as you can with twenty nine people in the same room fighting over a word because that's what happens. Well, yeah, I mean even on. Uh, other shows where you, like Saturday Night Live, for example, yeah, people will fight to get a piece of a bit. Yes, but twenty nine, twenty nine. It didn't stay that way long, but it was always in the twenties. Always, same people. No, it's got to rotate. But, but, but no, there was a, a core group. Huh. The core rotate. group is awful damn good. Yeah. Kind of like your show of oh, shows. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, the, yeah what, Woody Allen and Mel Brooks. <laughs> Remember that? What a writer's well, room that was. Yeah. And Sid Caesar got a little strange after that. Yeah. Carl Reiner was in there. Yeah. All these, it's amazing. There's an incredible amount of talent. They can be assembled in one place, which is often what they say about this show. Is that right? No. I didn't know. <laughs> but one could dream. Now, Chugiak, Alaska. You ever been to Chugiak? No, I have been to Alaska, but I have not been to Chugiak. Alaska's gorgeous. Yes. Chugiak is a, a very tiny portion of the beauty. Where, given the state, yeah. where is it? Uh, not far from Anchorage. 
Okay. Anchorage is about the size of this table, by the way. I know. I mean, you think of it being, you know, a big deal because it's the biggest city. And if you blink while you're driving, you find yourself outside. This yeah. That happened to me. I was supposed to go meet the uh, U.S. postal inspectors who are uh, making reindeer meat because there are no deer in Alaska, just reindeer. You know? Oh, okay. And uh, it was summertime, which meant the sun never set. <laughs> just, yeah. it, was, oh, it was gorgeous. It was like 7 p.m. dusk all night. All night yeah. So it was like 3 in the morning, and we're laughing and scratching, and it's like you, you don't feel like it's 3 in the morning because it feels it's like it's... time to go to sleep. Yeah. It's not dark. Yeah, it's great fun. Next time I was there, it was 30 degrees below zero in wintertime, and that wasn't as much fun. No, I was there. It was about 15 to 20 degrees below. Oh, a heat wave. The water. I was on the water. You were on the water. Was the water frozen? No. Oh, okay. Anyway, in Chugiak, Alaska, there's a high school called Chugiak High School. Alma mater, the homecoming, they might have a room with, for 12 people. <laughs> yeah. more, more than that. But yeah, these, these, uh, the guys, kind of these hard-ass teenage characters. One of them, Raymond Sheely, they called him Smiley. His best friend, his nickname was Lizard, <laughs> which gives you a hint. They called him Lizard because he seemed cold and devoid of any human emotions. Okay. Smiley smiled all the time. Obviously, they became the best of friends. They're serving several life sentences, at least two life sentences for murder right now. No kidding. Yeah, that was. Not that it was predictable. Uh, they did have a kind of an interesting lifestyles while in high school. And they had kind of like a gang of friends that they hung out with. And people really liked Smiley because he had a Chevy Suburban, which meant he could fit a lot of people into it. Right. He had a provisional driver's license. And uh, they could go now, party. What is, what is a provisional driver's license? That's uh, provided you don't get in too much trouble, you can drive. Provisional. <laughs> so it means you could, you know, you drive for work, you can be underage and drive, you know. Okay. So one night, doing a typical teenage sort of thing. I mean, Smiley was famous for doing typical teenage things, such as raping a girl and tying her to a tree and leaving her there for some time, and then coming back and apologizing and saying, tell you what, if you don't tell too many people about me raping you and tying you to a tree, I'll be your protector the rest of your life. Swell. That's an offer you can't refuse. No, that's an offer you can't refuse. Uh, so she, she, got, uh, she told us about that. <laughs> that was an interesting arrangement. Well... Uh, there was a third guy, one of their buddies, kind of a cute little baby-faced guy named uh, George Kerr, or Carr, which is depending on whether you're, you know, the male or the female. I never could tell what K-E-R-R, what you call him. John Kerr, yeah, whatever. They're in a car on their way from Chugiak to Anchorage to check into a motel with a couple of, you know, nice-looking hookers which is legal, you know, up there, and some dope, and they're going to have a, you know, smoke out and get down party. Now, Lizard had just made a, uh, a very interesting buy, ordered something, and it, and it arrived. Something every teenage boy probably in Alaska really wants to get his hands on. That's a sniper rifle. It's kind of like a chainsaw being every, you know, West Coast kid's dream. Up I there, didn't know that. yeah, it's the kid, the gift every kid wants for Hanukkah. The chainsaw. Yeah, I, uh, I never dreamed of having a chainsaw. Well, see, you're the exception that proves the rule. Uh, no. uh, anyway, so he gets his his uh, sniper rifle. Now, if you have a sniper rifle and you're driving to Anchorage, of course you're going to have the thing loaded in the front seat of the car, right? Of course, <laughs> of course, don't we all? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, this guy had a Toyota. Kind of cuts cuts off his AMC Pacer, whatever the hell he's driving up there. And uh, Lizard decides he's going to teach that guy a lesson. He's going to fire his sniper rifle at him on the freeway. Good idea. Yes, well, he does. He fires the weapon. Unbeknownst to him, the bullet does not miss the car. It goes through the rear window, kills the passenger. Unfortunately, his name just suddenly went out of my lost my mind, but I'll come back to me. Well, well hopefully you won't find it. No, uh, kill him instantly. They don't know that. They go on to party at the motel. In the morning, uh, George gets up before the rest of them because he has to go to work. He's a responsible sort of kid. He's just because he's shipping all night long. He's got enough energy to go to work. Well, it's on the news about this poor innocent guy in a passenger seat of a Toyota getting shot in the back of the head. With a rifle. Well, right away he knows, you know, what the deal was. Yeah. 
So he, uh, you know, Dumbbell doesn't want to be part of, of that sort of thing. He just happened to be along for the ride. So he goes to the cops and tells them. Meanwhile, when uh, a Smiley and Lizard wake up, they see the news and they immediately call George to tell him as if he doesn't know and warn him not to say a damn word, although, you know. A little late. Yeah, a little yeah. late. By then, uh, oh, long fasting story short, uh, George is wearing a wire. <laughs> and virtually every human being in the state of Alaska was wiretapped. Really? Federal, uh, because the population isn't that huge, uh, six degrees of separation with almost everybody up there, and they want to be able to eliminate the innocent as quickly as possible. And so that was fairly easy to do. The uh, people who cracked this case had transcripts of every conversation they recorded. They were so cooperative with me when I wrote the Alaska Mail Bomb Conspiracy that they sent me this giant box of transcripts of the conversations between Smiley and Lizard and this person and that person and everybody they knew because it wasn't about killing the guy in the car. That was a slam dunk as far as prosecution went. They both the Lizard and Chewie got like life in prison. Yeah. George testified against him. He just told the truth. Uh, that didn't go over too well with the Smiley Lizard. You think? Who, yeah, who decided to kill him from prison. And that's Toast. a hell of a shot. Yeah. yeah. No matter how powerful the rifle is. So now we've got to flash forward a certain number of years. Doug Gustafson's sister, Peggy Barnett, eight months pregnant, drives to the post office with her daughter in the car over the bumpy road, almost goes into labor over this. She has a bomb in a package that she mails to George. Cost $2.75 or something. Did she send it insured? Yeah, it was a return receipt, yeah. George is at home. He's off to visiting his mother, uh, his dad, and his stepmom are home. And the father says, gee, George got a package. Might be important. I should probably open it. It's a good idea. Okay. He opened the package. The explosion was so intense that neighbors thought there'd been a, a giant Alaskan earthquake. That's how severe it was. He was, of course, killed instantly. They found his knuckles on the roof. His wife, who happened to be standing farther away, she unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you feel about it, didn't die, but her face was melted, blinded, deafened, oh. literally her face melted. The amazing thing is when they pulled her out of the rubble and the insulation and the blood and everything, she's blinded, she's deaf, her face is gone. She has one thing that she says, Doug Gustafson did this. No kidding. Yeah, she knew, she knew who wanted to kill her stepson. And that had to be who it was. But how do you... How do you prove this? How do you prove that? So then what happened? So then, this is where the U.S. Postal Inspectors become involved. Now, the U.S. Postal Inspectors have not been the heroes of a book or movie since 1940-something well, movie. I remember uh, Luke Gossett Jr. was... You're right, but you're getting ahead of my story. Okay. They did a movie version of The Alaska Mail Bomb Conspiracy. Uh, they moved it from Alaska to Baltimore. Well, because, you know. <laughs> it got cheaper. <laughs> Same plot. But they hadn't been the stars of a movie or a book since uh, uh, Audrey Long, a wife of Leslie Charteris, who wrote The Saints, started the film Post Office Investigator in 1940-something. That was the last time. In fact, the, the uh, PR guy from the uh, Postal Inspectors was so aggravated. He said, I heard on TV the other night, he said, the FBI, assisted by postal workers, raided the offices of... Sounds like these mail carriers ran and pulled machine guns out of their mail bags. Could be. But it isn't. The, actually, the U.S. Postal Inspectors uh, have... Uh, higher and more sophisticated labs and equipment than the FBI. They are the premier law enforcement investigation outfit in the U.S. Is that, that stands today? It stands today. 
And people, I mean, talk about an image problem. People don't even know the extent to which these guys do. They did the Unabomber case, of course. Anything that involves use of the uh, United States mail. Because once you put that envelope in the slot, it becomes property of the federal government. I didn't know that. Well, yeah. that's interesting because the U.S. mail isn't the federal government. Well, it's a division of what? Uh, AT&T. No, it's, it's, <laughs> no. It, they moved it away, didn't they, years ago? Well, they didn't privatize it as they did in Canada. But it, no, it's still the United States Postal Service, even if they farmed it out to India. You know, it was an outsource. You know, welcome to U.S. Postal Service. <laughs> well, we get our stuff faster. Yeah. Well, it was like, you, you see, humor, was it called Comedy in the Muslim World, the Albert Brooks movie, where he's in India, and there's a call center. You see, uh, William Morris. <laughs> 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 yeah, that was great. Anyway, pardon me. U.S. Postal Inspectors get involved because it was sent through the mail. Now, they had a pretty good idea that it was Chile and Gustafson who did this from prison. But who helped them? I mean, how did they don't know that Peggy mailed this damn thing. Who put it together? How did they do it? Well, if you've ever had a call from a prisoner at a penitentiary or in a jail, they always tell, you know, you have a collect call from, you know, so-and-so, and they're always monitored. So every single call from the penitentiary is recorded. I don't know if it's Ampex 406 or Scotch 206. But it's recorded, right? Who listens? Who listens to that? Nobody. Well, now there's this fellow, a particular agent from the U.S. Postal Service, who I could not show a picture of uh, in the book because he does a lot of undercover work. You know, hides in your mailbox, I guess. Yeah. Uh, had to sit down and listen to hour after hour after hour of the most boring, banal, you know, F-U-C-K-laden conversations between Chile and Gustafson and the sisters and brothers and, you know, whatever boring crap you could think of. For hours and hours and hours and days, literally days on end of suffering through that until all of a sudden conversation comes up about Peggy's daughter's science project. Now, let's pay a little more closer attention to this. And as they talk about the girls' science project, it's basically directions for making a bomb. There you go. And uh, how they were getting the parts, where they get them from, where do you get the blasting caps, where do you do this, where do you do that. So they finally got it, got it all laid out. So now they know to go after Peggy. Her brother, uh, of course, Ron and uh, Smiley and Sheila are already in the slammers. So they're, not, they're not going anywhere. But they want to get the participants. Who, uh, so they, they do it out. What happens is Peggy's brother says to his girlfriend, honey, I'm going to go to the store and get a you know six-pack of Coors or something. And phew, he's gone, comes here. To Los Angeles. They're looking for him. They don't know where he is, but they pretty much track him that he's somewhere here in the Los Angeles area. Well, at that same time, at the Roosevelt Hotel, they were filming uh, Boiling Point. Remember that film? I think it's what, Dennis Hopper and uh, Wesley Snipes or something? I don't remember. Uh, Ellen Barkin. Look up and see who's at Boiling Point. Yes, the uh, consultant on the film... And uh, is, is a well-known former uh, Fed guy who's done a lot of consulting on all these, you know, films. The, guy, the runaway guy that they're trying to catch is in the Roosevelt Hotel lobby on the telephone with his girlfriend back in Alaska. Okay. Because there is a reward for capturing him. So he's calling, saying, honey, stay with me on the phone so they can trace this and they can come and arrest me so you can get the $10,000 reward. So they all go along with this. And in order to, to run in and arrest him, which he didn't have to run in, they could have walked because he's waiting for him. They go crashing right through the movie set. 
Now, the consultant on the film knows these guys, these feds who are crashing, and he thinks it's a practical joke on him having these guys with guns come running through the movie set. And you go, hey, fellas, funny joke. They go, out of our way. <laughs> we got to arrest this unarmed perp who's waiting for us patiently. So we got to hurry up and run in with guns. So they get him. His girlfriend gets through $10,000. But getting that $10,000, which she spent on a used car, put her over the amount of money she would get for welfare, which she was on before. So she loses that and winds up going further in the hole. <laughs> what a mess. What a mess. Now, Peggy has to go on trial for her role in mailing the, the mail bomb and killing, uh, you know, George. Is that, is that murder? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's killing people usually, that especially is, on purpose. Is, is how, well, uh, what about us? We, we kill our audience. And no, no, we don't kill the audience. We just destroy careers. <laughs> okay, what'd you find out, Mark? Snipes, Viggo Mortensen, Dennis Hopper... Uh, Lolita Davidovich. Oh, I like her. Seymour Cassell. Zero Marcel? No. no. Seymour Cassell. Friend of Outlaw Radio. Yep. Yeah, close personal friend. Tony Lopianca. As a matter of fact, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, does it say who the consultant was? <laughs> He's got any, like, Papadopoulos or something. Uh, uh, in, in any event, uh, they're going to put Peggy on trial. But how the hell is she going to get a fair trial in Alaska when every everybody in the everybody knows everybody, and this has been the hottest topic of conversation in every newspaper article. Every you know, there's no way. So they they have a change of venue for the uh, their trial, which takes place in San Francisco. How do they come up with that? Well, I guess they flip coins. Well, it's either going to be uh, San Francisco or uh, Seattle, or you know, they wanted to get it far away from Anchorage, where people didn't know the story, but didn't already have it in their mind who did what to who. It didn't bode well for Peggy and her future plans. Her husband, who knew nothing about any of this, uh, promptly divorced her, as one can well imagine. Uh, I wasn't too thrilled with uh, with that. No. Um, everyone testified against everybody else. Guess it's been they are prone to do. Uh, Lizard made it real clear that uh, he's the one who knew how to make the bomb. That he deserved full credit for that. I mean, he didn't give any argument. He just didn't want Smiley Cheely to get any credit for knowing how to do the bomb. Okay. And he said, I do not have any plans at this time to blow up anybody else. That at was this time. At this time, yeah. this could change. It moments yeah. notice. Chile, however, had a list, like Schindler's List in reverse. It's a list of all the people he wants dead. And, of course, George's name was on there. Name of the judge, name of the attorneys, uh, name of his third-grade teacher, probably. I mean, everybody's got, he's got to get them all. And in their fantasy, this fantasies that when that bomb goes off and George is killed, I'm going to sit back in my cell, light up a great big cigar as if I were Howard Lapidus, and have a drink of cognac or whatever the hell it is, and laugh so hard. I don't think they have it set up that way in prison. Do they? anybody know? Our fact checker, can you um, sit back well, and have, have a... Well, you have to go to the smoke shop. <laughs> oh, I get the big the cigar. And, yeah. To get the cigar. And the cognac, too. He dipped a cigar in a cognac. Oh, no, that's, that's in the strip mall. Over the strip mall of the prison? That's possible up there. They do not separate the child uh, molesters and child killers from the regular population in Alaska as they do down here. Right. I, why, I don't know. They're safe up there. No one's going to bother them. You know? uh, here, they'd be nuked, nuked at a heartbeat. But up there, they're just in general population. Mm. Well, uh, Lizard was had pretty much gone to seed anyway. Now, uh, the wife, the one with the, the melted face and everything, poor woman. Yes. Oh, God, she just went through it. She launches a lawsuit against uh, the penitentiary, Department of Corrections. I'm sure they recorded all these conversations, but no one listened to them. And here they are planning to bomb and murder, you know. Okay. So it's a pretty damn good case. Yep. She has offered a settlement 
You know, because they're insured for this type of nonsense. Most people don't know that, say, example, if the police in a chase hit your car, crash into it, you get paid. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you all get to sue. So, uh, girl? But, yeah. So, she's blind and deaf. How did they communicate? Uh, they, uh, in her palm, like she's Helen Keller. No, she, she could, she got some of her hearing back and some of her vision back, but it took a lot of operations. And I met, I met the, the woman, uh, and it's, I felt so sorry for her. She's an absolute mess. You know who testified in her defense? Who's that? Lizard. Oh. Okay. Because he said, I felt bad because she, well, I had no intention to ever harm her. She wasn't the target. I wanted to kill her stepson. I didn't want to kill her husband. I didn't want to melt her face. I feel really bad about this. And anything that will cost the state money, I'm in favor of. So he, they form an alliance. The guy who makes the bomb that melted her face, and she, you know, he's testifying on her behalf. Well, by the time the jury made their decision in her favor, it came out to be less money than she was offered but the insurance settlement, yeah. she should have just let it go then. So she was more heartbroken and devastated winning than if she just let it go. So that was too bad. Uh, very tragic story there. She's still alive and still miserable. Uh, Smiley and Sheely are, of course, still in prison. They were already in there for life. Well, what can you do? You know, you have to serve tw- well, twice as long. send them to Detroit. Yeah, well, no, these are the movie they sent them to Baltimore. <laughs> Pardon me while I cough. People pick on me for coughing. They do? Why is that, bro? <laughs> oh, well, that's why. That's why. Yeah. It doesn't, doesn't that microphone have a cough button? That senile old man that emcees the show, he has coughing fits, uh, is raspy, his nose runs, his feet smell, he's built upside down. And he can talk up to the vocal on bitch, and that's about it. <laughs> his career is over. You know. So now they drag him out of semi-retirement, the nursing home. To uh, co-host True Crime and Zizzer. See? Yeah. How the Mighty Have Fallen. And his name is Mark C.G. Boy. <laughs> uh, okay. Okay. You insist. So the Alaska mail bomb conspiracy was a... Uh, interesting, they were, the U.S. Postal Inspectors gave their award for Investigator of the Year to the Anchorage, Alaska Police Chief. It's uh, a political move, obviously. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's because... The everyone cooperated with everybody else. These kind of investigations are not inexpensive, in case you didn't know. They could run into millions and millions of dollars, depending on how long it takes to do the case and how many people are involved. And someone has to coordinate the cooperation between the state police, the feds, postal inspectors, Anchorage PD, whoever else, cooperating witnesses, performing seals, whatever it is they've got. Okay. I'm going to cough now. Pretend I'm hitting the cough button, okay? All right. <laughs> Meanwhile. Make it more annoying. Yeah, just don't, do uh, don't pass out and crack yeah. your skull. Well, it's just that I'm next to Howard's giant cigar. It's a good-smelling cigar, by the way. That it is. What brand is that? I don't know. Don't know? Is it a gift from Magic Man Allen? No, it's not, but yeah, I do receive many gifts from Magic Man Allen. That's awfully sweet. Yes. It's a sweet cigar. Not a Swisher sweet. No, that's West Hollywood. No, Frank is in the green room. Get on bump. So he said, well, what happened to you, Burl? How did you get involved in the Alaska Mail Bomb Conspiracy? I'm so glad you asked. Uh, I started writing the book um, uh, right after Man Overboard, kind of at Resurrection of Phil Champagne, uh, came out. Wait, Howard. One. That's one. That's one. Soon to be either a minor motion picture or a documentary by uh, Matthew Watts. That's five. That's five. The same man who did the uh, documentary on A Taste for Murder, uh, written by Burl Bear and Frank C. Gerardo Jr. Seven. Uh Uh-huh. Now, Frank C. Gerardo Jr. also participated with uh, Ken Jarrell and myself in the brilliant book Betrayal in Blue. I was just going to ask how... True story by the documentary The Seven Five. Uh, what number is that, Mark? A uh, twenty-seven. <laughs> <laughs> now you're done. Am I done now? Okay. So uh, I started writing this book. The U.S. Postal Inspectors were thrilled and delighted that someone was finally, since the ad business is like 1953 or whatever, uh, they were going to be the heroes of a book, which is why they were so incredibly cooperative with me. They gave me 
everything. It was a true crime author's dream. There wasn't a transcript, a phone conversation, anything in the entire state that related to the case. They paid for everything. They shipped it to me, my home address, giant boxes arriving. And I cut a deal with a publisher. And because my daughter was uh, just beginning her college education and you got your tuition to pay, I said, you know, it would be smart if instead of getting 50% up front and 50% at the end, and they'll be a lot happier if I just have them make regular, predictable monthly payments over a certain amount of months, which I can dedicate towards my daughter's college tuition. First month, no problem. There's the, the money goes in the bank. Second month, no problem. Money goes in the bank. Third month, fourth month, fifth month, we've got a problem. I get a phone call from the U.S. Postal Inspectors. They say, hey, Burl, how's the book going? And I said, well, got to tell you, when I don't get paid, I don't write. Right. And I'm not getting paid. I go out fishing for two weeks, Loon Lake. Come back, I had a fax machine in those days. Here's a fax from the U.S. Postal Inspectors. Dear Mr. Bear, you will appreciate, I'm sure, the accompanying news feature. Agents of the United States Postal Service raided the offices today of such and such publisher, confiscated all computers, everything, okay. and put them under investigation for mail fraud. And the company went under. Turns out the uh, the owner and the owner's son uh, were prosecuted, I believe, as they allegedly of embezzlement of things that were qualified or authorized to uh, cash and endorse corporate checks. Money that was coming to the corporation, they were cashing at the money tree in the mall, yeah. paying $250,000 in check cashing fees for X number of millions of dollars. And cash that went apparently for entertainment purposes and gambling. So suddenly, the book that I had started to write and rights to that book became an asset of the company, of course, that's held for liquidation of all assets and payment of debts and blah, blah, blah. It took uh, a long time, uh, you know, more than a week. It took like a couple of years or more to get the rights back on that everything I'd done on that because you know, they had to be close out everything with that company. So I get the rights back to uh, Alaska Mail Bomb Conspiracy. And well, phew, now what am I going to do with it? I get a phone call from R. Barry Flowers, criminologist, author. He says, Burl, I'm doing a book called Masters of True Crime. And I consider you one of those. Do you have a case you could write about? It would, would it be like the, the length of a novella, not a full length, yeah. you know, with, uh, longer than a short story. You know. As a matter of fact, I do. Now, it's been like, say, 20 years since I started doing it. Right? So I go back and I get hold of Jim Bordenay, who was head of the public relations for the Postal Inspectors. At the time I did the book, he'd since retired. But I found him. What a brilliant guy. Uh and wonderful. If I had wanted to hire someone to do public relations for me, and he was, you know, wasn't retired, that's the guy I'd hire. Very professional, incredibly thorough, and accurate. I mean, his talk about being a fact checker. He every time I wrote a draft, he would go over it in the smallest, but make sure it was one hundred percent factual. That's a big job. That's important it's stuff. Almost twice as long as writing. What's that? You got to learn it, and then and then right. But I think it's. When you're a true crime writer, you want it. If you're writing nonfiction, you want it to be true. Perfect, yeah. yeah you want it to be 100. You don't want someone to say, this is fake, this isn't real. But, you know, because some people do check stuff, and other people don't care whether it's true or not. <laughs> but he did a fantastic job. Uh, absolutely everything in that story, Alaska Mail Bomb Conspiracy, this part of Masters of True Crime, is guaranteed 100% accurate and correct. Uh, and once again, the postal inspectors were fabulous and cooperative and so happy that finally it was going to come out, which is it came out, uh, of course, in a paperback uh, book called Masters of True Crime. And um, my thing is called uh, Alaska Mail Bomb Conspiracy. And the, that episode, shall we say, as a standalone, is available as an audiobook. 
uh, either for download or you can get it on. Uh, I've seen it on CDs. You know, yeah. play CDs in your car or tape, whatever you like. And uh, in fact, if you don't have an account at Audible and you want to get an account at Audible, you're entitled to a free copy of Alaska Mail Bomb Conspiracy or Betrayal in Blue or any of my brilliant books <laughs> or anybody else's. But let's mention mine. You get a free book when you sign up with Audible, which is actually owned by Amazon.com. So how about that? I think that's amazing. <laughs> that's where you were going with that's it? That's it. took you a long time to come up with that word. Would you have to have Jim Bordenay vetted for you? Yeah, well, I uh, I kind of dozed off there. For yeah, well, you've, you've dozed off during a mass murder a few times. So. Give his old hat to him. Old hat. Old hat. You're probably saying, what are they doing now? We were discussing that just the other day on Peggy, because Peggy didn't get life in prison, because even though she mailed it, you know, she was a fashion accessory after the fact, whatever they call it. Well, if she mailed it, why wouldn't she? Well, she, uh, I don't know. She got X number of years. But they always go lighter, usually, on, on women with kids and stuff, you know? So we figured out that she probably is just about getting out of prison now. And well, probably listening to the show going, what's their address? Let's have her on the show. Yeah. How do you feel about it now, huh? Yeah, it's a pretty tragic story. Sure, yeah. But uh, Smiley and Chile, they're not going anywhere. They put, put them in separate prisons so they couldn't hang out together. Like they're not going to find somebody to hang out with in a prison. No, Who no. Knows? Shucks. Yeah, yeah it's going to be very lonely yeah. in the yard. <laughs> no, I can top you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, up, up. Can you top this? Yeah. <laughs> Bottoms up. Uh remember we had on the show, I don't know whether you were doing the show that it was Don Waldman. I had on... Uh, uh, a friend of mine who had gone to prison. It's a bizarre charge. And while he was in prison, his employer, a real estate company, stole his identity and was buying condos and Mercedes and all this stuff. And uh, I mean, the guy only did like a year in, in prison for some, you know, silly thing. And comes out and discovers that he's supposedly in debt and owns, you know, Mercedes and this condo and that condo, all these things in his name. And, of course, he had a, when he went to court on this, he was like, I know it wasn't me because I could show that I was, yes, here's where I, was. I, mean, I was. I was in prison for 12 months on some silly, you know, one of those things where they go, oh, you're black, aren't you? <laughs> so I, I give you a minimum one year. Okay. Yeah, so that was a... I, that was one of the weirdest things. We asked him on the show. So, uh, you know, did you uh, go gay for pay while you were in in, uh, in prison? Yeah. And he said, uh, it's called situational. It's a, a situational adaptation. So it's, uh, just, you know, they say go to prison and learn a new skill. Learn many new skills. Yeah, many. Yeah. Used to teach you how to cut hair. <laughs> Okay. okay. That, I think that's intelligent to give um, convict scissors and razor blades. Yeah. Well, like Punch was telling all sorts of things that he learned to do in prison. At, uh, it's crime school. It is. You become like people with whom you share time and space. And uh, you would just go, go into prison for some uh, minor, you know, you're going in there for a year to teach you a lesson. Uh, when you're in there with guys who are doing... Th- 30 to 25 to life for all sorts of nefarious things. You're going to learn all sorts of stuff from them. Yep. And you get out of prison. Who do you know? What do you know? And things change rapidly in the real world. The only movie I've ever seen where someone had my name is a movie called Dirty Little Billy. And uh, I guess it might have been a play originally. But in the film, there is a character named Burl. And every time someone would call out his name, I'm looking. (laughs) Guys' names are like Jack, John, Howard. There's always people in the movie with your name. You probably become used to it. But no one ever has my name. And so they would go, hey, Burl. (laughs) Unusual. Uh, And it's Billy the Kid, who I think is played by Michael J. Pollard. How's that for a memory? Uh, and this guy Burl and his girlfriend are, are held up in a saloon. You know, they, they know the, the, the good guys are outside waiting for them. And they wait, and they wait, and they wait. And life in the town goes on without them. No one's coming after them. They just let them stay 
to lock, to, you know, imprisoned themselves in this empty saloon for years. <laughs> I don't know how long. Brought them stuff. How did that go? Huh? How did they get things? How did they get in there? No. Food, water, alcohol. Oh, they had whatever was in there. I don't know if it wasn't years. It was probably months or weeks. Whatever. But the point was is that life went on without them on the outside. The town's getting larger. There's new construction. Is this, this is good. No one cares about them, you know. They hell with them. They're not even, they're not the topic of the week, you know. They're, they're not to the top of mind, a hot topic. They're not the showbiz story. And they think they are. They think this whole time that the whole town is focused on them, and no one cares. They're off to, you know. And then they finally get out of there, and they see this nothing. There's no parade. <laughs> no parade. Yeah. It's like Punch said about when he got out of prison, he thought there'd be the press there. Nobody. Nobody. What gets me is the guys who get a lot of press when they're going to trial. And, of course, their egos are so huge when they represent themselves. This guy was convicted. He says, the first thing I'm doing is I'm calling a press conference. He says, no, you're in prison tomorrow and there's no press conference. No one cares anymore. Goodbye. And it was such a shock to the guy because everything had been so about him and that power that was, it was it. gone. Yeah. It's gone. Like that. Speaking of which, yeah. Fox isn't covering all of President Trump's rallies anymore. They're, they used to broadcast them live. Now they just have, you know, snippets because the ratings have been... They're thinking of bringing in Arnold Schwarzenegger to play the part of the president. <laughs> Good actor. Yeah, he's not he's bad. Right. I, uh, I was talking with the, the gentleman, a film producer yesterday. We are talking about, uh, like, uh, Kevin Spacey and some of these other people, uh, Louis C.K., who've had their careers interrupted. I don't say... I say interrupted. Yes. Uh, because of these allegations. And I said... Oh, I allegedly said, how the hell did John Travolta skate on all this? Yeah, how did he? I don't Probably know. because everything that he did was consensual. No. No? <laughs> no, ask my nephew. Okay. My other nephew on the other side. Uh, who left him, uh, what movie, happened to him? Uh, allegedly, uh, he was working on a, a film with Travolta, and Travolta decided he wanted to ride him like a stolen bicycle. And he said no. And there was quite a bit of fallout after that. And uh, uh, my nephew uh, basically lost that gig because he wouldn't go along for the ride. He didn't want to be a stolen bicycle. He didn't want to be a stolen bicycle. No, he didn't want a seat sniffed either. So who did a bump? But why does, why does some people get another skate? I don't understand that. And um, Could it be that... That in his case, it's all boys. Well, yeah. What about Kevin Spacey? It was uh, always been an aficionado of, of young fellows. Um, and Kevin Spacey's so damn talented. Yes. So. So. Uh, you know, I, I, sometimes they move too fast. I think in punishing people when there hasn't been any legal punishment. Like, oh, you're off of House of Cards now. You're a big hit show because someone said X number of years ago you stripped them. And it hasn't gone to any sort of litigation. Well, he didn't says, we have Scott Baio get accused by... Uh, by who? By one of the cast... Louis C.K.? No. No. Louis a friend of mine. Come on. I like Louis a lot. I thought that was crazy that they, what, they canceled his HBO thing. They did everything. They that did. was nuts. I didn't think that was right for them to do that. No. And not to, that we're going to talk about that today. But, mm. yes, you're right. It was wrong. Yeah. But let's not make that case. No. But that one, that one pissed me off. A few of those words that this isn't right. You know, if the guy's a scumbag and he's been doing this and covering up or paying off or blah, 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 non-consensual things, fine, take care of it. But that, that, when you're dealing with artists, that doesn't, shouldn't impact the art. You know? But it does. There's a morals clause in every one of their contracts. Yeah. And it's pretty broad. So they could... Call up for anything they wanted. Do what they I know. I, I know uh, mem- members of my family on both sides that will never uh, watch a Mel Gibson movie again. Oh, because he got drunk and and you know, he ran into rave. God, how many years ago was that? I thought Jackie Mason had the best response to that. And that was that was he defended Gibson. 
said, why are you call, call a guy an anti-Semite such because the guy gets drunk and spouted such? She says, haven't you ever had an aunt that made an ass out of herself when she got drunk and spouted a bunch of stupid stuff? You know? You go, ah, oh, that's Aunt So-and-so. She was drunk. But with him, you can say, oh, that's the secret thoughts of a, you know, that's not for you to say. The guy got drunk and he made an ass out of himself. That's all. That's what he did. Yeah. And millions of people do that in America every day. I've seen them. I've heard them. I've smelled them. You have. Yeah. Well, that's Not each and every one of them, mind you. Yeah. Because some of them were in Kevin Spacey's basement. Hello. <laughs> man, man, where did this show go today? I don't know, but it's been entertaining to me. Yes, it has. <laughs> to you. But, uh, yeah, and uh, I'd work with Mel. I bet maybe you've worked with Mel as well. Super nice guy. Uh, and he told me, he says, uh, and I thought it was interesting. He said, you know, I can't drink. He says, because if I drink, says, there's something wrong with my brain and alcohol. If I drink, I become the biggest asshole you ever met in your entire life. He says, even I can't stand me. He says, and if I were to drink like I used to, he says, it could destroy my career or at least have a horrible impact on it and my life. He says, so I just have to, says, I'm not even the same person. It's like a total personality change. He's right. Hell of a nice guy. Yeah. Hell of a talented guy. He's one of those people that shouldn't drink. I got a, a friend of mine. Same exact thing. Nice guy. Polite. Into. <laughs> turned into a, well, actually, his sister turned into a motel. <laughs> what? She was a shapeshifter and she turned into a motel. But that's a whole other story. Uh, anyway, if he has a drink, the most violent dangerous, offensive human being on the planet. It's like totally, it's like possessed by demons. Now, according to uh, Dr. Akakur Muhammad in his book, Anatomy of Addiction, which I was very proud to help uh, prepare the manuscript, the reason that they're like that is not simply because of the alcohol. And it would be? A symptom. It's a symptom of an undiagnosed medical condition. That is either usually an infection of the pancreas, damage to the pancreas, uh, a form of epilepsy, or some other type of uh, brain trauma. It is not a common effect of alcohol that it makes people angry and violent and dangerous. Uh, the whole thing of people, people becoming loud and obnoxious on alcohol is also not because of the alcohol. That's purely a social construct and only exists in, in the West. People in Japan get just as hammered and they don't act like that. I've never seen a hammered Japanese person. Well, that's because they don't act like an American. <laughs> but that is a, a social construct. In fact, they've done experiments where they tell people that they're drinking alcohol when they're not, and people will act that way. Placebo right. effect? Yeah, that's right. Or they tell people they're John Cameron Swayze, and they start giving the news. It's amazing. <laughs> How did that come out of the air? Uh, well, actually, it was easier to pull out the Timex than out of the tank. There you go. <laughs> I was watching that night. Were you watching that night? Sure Ladies and gentlemen, it was a fascinating scene. A 60-second live commercial for Timex watches with John Cameron Swayze in a nice suit and tie has a giant fish tank with no fish in it, water and an outboard motor. It tied to the propeller, or wrapped on the propeller, is a Timex watch. The concept is, you start the outboard motor, you put it in the water, and he's doing the copy about whatever watch it is. And that it can take a licking and keep on ticking. And he pulls the, the propeller back up. No watch. It's come off the propeller. Oh, man. Doesn't bat an eye. Undoes his sleeve button. Rolls up his suit and his shirt sleeve on live TV. Goes and puts it in the tank. Searching for, you know, bring out the watch. Can't find it. It's not there. It's vanished off the face of the earth, evaporated. And he looks at the camera and says, well, ladies and gentlemen, I can tell you one thing with confidence. Wherever it is, it's still ticking. <laughs> Thank you, Burrow. And Thank night. you. Thank you. John Cameron's way of the great. I was why I was so impressed. That's the only John Cameron Swayze story I've ever heard. Really? Yes. Well, how he about that? was a very popular. Do you know who he was, Mark? Yes, I do. Okay. I remember the commercials. That's yes. a famous commercial. And you know what happened, actually, to the watch? Is if you've ever dealt with an outboard motor like this, it does, it does suction, it sucks the water in and then propels it out. If the watch came loose off the propeller, it's the same thing that happens to socks. 
In the dryer? And yes, but it doesn't happen in the dryer. Where it actually happens is in the washer. Because they get wet and they get thin and they get sucked out just like with the propeller thing and go down the drain. So that's why you should tie your socks together, not while you're wearing them, but when you put them in the wash. That, that, would, that would be quite a feat of no. bum bum Boy, I'm more pressure than an astronaut. <laughs> Speaking of which, boy, there was a great outlaw radio show that I heard on the way here today because I'd, I'd left a, my player running and I'd been listening to some old outlaw shows that had taped, you know. It's probably going to be a good one today, too, bro. Really? Yeah. Are you going to listen to it? Nope. <laughs> no. He'll be busy working. I guess. But it was, uh, uh, I was playing a prominent role, which is why I was enjoying it so much. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. How did I guess that? I don't know. Marty, it was Marty and I got into some, one of our tiffs. You know, I guess he couldn't call you a bottom feeder fast enough <laughs> something with the merchandise and the licensing. <laughs> And I found the whole thing vastly entertaining. I hear music. I do, too, and I hear something's on the way. What's next, bro? Probably Magic Bad Owl, the deepest and second is live. The Lighting Up Lounge right here at OutlawRadioLive.com. Yeah. 